naturally occurring psychoactive compound, psilocybin, is found in over 200 species of mushrooms. Despite their millennia of use by humans for mental and spiritual well-being, they have been classified falsely among the most dangerous and illegal of substances. Locked away from those who need them most. The Psilocybin Chronicles documents the individuals who courageously consume, collect, or cultivate these mushrooms to improve the quality of their lives. Won't you join us as we welcome the return of psilocybin? Welcome back to the Psilocybin Chronicles. I am sort of your host for this episode, Eric Osborne. The podcast you're listening to is, of course, intended for educational and harm reduction purposes only. The Psilocybin Chronicles, Myco Meditations, nor myself condones any illegal activity. Eric Osborne began managing construction crews at the age of 16. Eric was a middle school teacher for seven years of low-income inner-city students until he founded his first mycological enterprise, Magnificent Mushrooms. This gourmet mushroom company operated in southern Indiana selling mushrooms to some of the area's finest restaurants until Eric was arrested for psilocybin cultivation and administration. This caused him to lose the farm, so to speak. A convicted felon, he then invested all of his energies into offering harm reduction, education, and safe legal access to psilocybin mushrooms. He does this currently in the United States through the founding of the nonprofit Pledge, P-L-E-D-G dot O-R-G, in Jamaica through Michael Meditations, and recently uh, the revived Magnificent Mushrooms, which is the cultivation company providing psilocybin and other mushrooms to retreats and private individuals on the island of Jamaica only. Uh, internationally, Eric promotes psilocybin through this here podcast. <laughs> you may have heard of it. Won't you join me in welcoming me to the Psilocybin Chronicles? Eric, thanks for coming on your show. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have uh, wanted to uh, hear you be the interviewee for once maybe yeah i don't know it's hard for me to think off still that like you know i have much value it's mainly the people that i bring on the show that i think are the real value um but there's probably some people that are curious about my uh experience yeah i know i'm curious uh so who is the person dead or alive that you would want to eat mushrooms with Man, you know, it's like funny we talked about earlier how I haven't given this much thought, really. I don't, it's it's like, wow. I mean, I have given it a lot of thought, but I haven't like come to any like one like, yes, that person. Because there's so many mm -hmm. amazing minds out there, amazing people and uh, energies and spirits or whatever. Um, but really, like if I search it, search it, search it, um, the person that keeps coming back to me that I think would have been just amazing to encounter um and then to encounter this space with um would be frederick Douglass, um the abolitionist yeah uh, i don't know if you know much about him but he was an, um, an amazing uh, i mean just will mind spirit i just 
uh, I don't know that there's anybody who I've like read their life and read their words that I thought this is like the baddest, one of the baddest human beings that stood for absolute freedom, period, of all humans. And that's what like ultimately we're, we're talking about here is cognitive liberty, right? The, the mm-hmm. exploring our minds. Well, it's not like it's not what we're talking about, but it's a huge part of what we're talking about because psilocybin and psychedelics <clears throat> the mind overall are kind of like the last frontier in that battle for freedom that fight for freedom right you know uh yeah yeah Roger douglas if you if you're if you are interested in he wrote a speech that uh <laughs> congress invited this guy to give a speech on the fourth of july to congress explaining uh, the the what the Fourth of July meant to the American black, right? The American Negro, as it says, it's like that's the title of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just stands up in front of Congress. It's like basically he like gives them all this like great accolades and like oh thank you distinguished gentlemen. And he's like, what the fuck you think you are having me here? You want to ask me, a <laughs> black man, <laughs> knowing what I've come through? You want to ask me what the Fourth of July means to me? It don't mean shit. And he just fucking laid it out. It was amazing. Wow. So yeah, I'd probably eat some mushrooms with old Freddie D. <laughs> <laughs> good choice. I don't know much about him yet. Already good choice. <laughs> oh. So uh, so how old were you when you first ate psilocybin? 19. 19? Mm-hmm. I'd heard about it, you know, growing up in Kentucky. It was kind of like you were saying, Matt, they're poison. You, mm-hmm. you, you're eating poison that's why you're having this experience um and then i was also just deathly afraid of eating the wrong mushroom that would absolutely kill me you know mm-hmm. um so but it was always like kind of in the zeitgeist too like alice in wonderland watching those cartoons and shows and readings and like a lot of a lot of child literature is kind of psychedelic and so when i look back i see um the what's the disney fantasia the dancing mushrooms mm-hmm. you know um there's there's so much so like it's been really interesting talking with people about this because it's like yeah like we we aren't really aware how early we were like introduced to magic mushrooms or psilocybin in particular um you know but but psychedelics overall i mean i remember as a kid even before mushrooms the first psychedelic i remember reading about uh i was like seven years old remember native americans eating peyote cactus and i was like i I need i need this i need to know what this is about at seven you know um so yeah Uh, and then um finally ate some mushrooms after some acid somebody you know i got some acid when i was like 19 um moved to the big city of louisville from uh little springfield and uh ate some LSD and people were like, Oh yeah, you like this. You're going to love mushrooms. So then very soon after somebody brought out some mushrooms and, uh, yeah. And I did. So like you're deciding that you want to do these. Do you still think it's bad for your brain? The first couple of times you're. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of like, yeah, but people are doing it. So it's not that bad. Right. People alcohol is poisonous, right? I've always known, I've known a long time. Alcohol is poisonous. It's like, well, so maybe it's poisonous, but it's not, not poison enough to kill you, so I see. <laughs> I'll recover. <laughs> yeah, I see. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hmm. so you you loved mushrooms after the LSD? What was? Yeah, yeah. So the first mushroom dose that I ever took, uh, 
Just like in a in a whatever random apartment and kind of like the hood in Louisville. Um, couldn't afford, you know, a great place to live. Sort of just a little complex with a bunch of kind of hippie-ish type of kids, you know, and trying to find our way and figure out who we are. Uh, one of those kids was a dealer. He brought in a big bag of mushrooms. And so I bought like a half quarter, a quarter, you know. It's like, oh, wow. Thinking about that, like, ooh, the first time I bought mushrooms, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> oh, oh, how much? This is what? This is what? looking at them they're all funky and blue and yeah. like, what i'm gonna eat this <laughs> and so i ate mushrooms <clears throat> and um i went to the i wouldn't feel anything and i uh, just went to the bathroom and my stomach was kind of churning so i went to the bathroom popped a squat and as i'm just sitting there uh the shadow of the toilet paper holder just turns into a snake and climbs up the wall and i just let out this big laugh and was like inside myself, I was just like, I'm home. <laughs> I'm home. I found it. Found I it. found home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it just ended up being a really good night. Ended up actually painting. Uh, I, I, had, I had always been into arts and I had a sculpture that I'd done recently at that point. And I ended up getting some paint out in the night and just like dripping paint all over it. And it, got, it was all kind of classic trippy and I started like doing little faces and stuff, and it and it actually uh, impacted my my painting style even to now. I mean, it it it, it directly changed my relationship uh, with paint, hmm. uh, and that was really 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 meaningful to me at that point. Um, I ended up like I was doing acrylics, and so I would like I'd have a bigger picture, you know, of what I was trying to paint, and then I would like inside of that picture, I would like with the swirls and the kind of distinguishment of the colors and, and kind of like drawn back perspectives would put like faces and, and many, many uh, um, scenes inside of the scene. You know, I did this mm-hmm. one of a maitake where, yeah, I just spent hours just tripping in on, on that painting and uh, right there where I was growing mushrooms too at the same time. Anyway, uh, so like, uh, yeah, you know, this thing here now after you mushrooms and then where'd it go from there after that? Like, I still thought it was like poison for a long time, long, long time. Uh, mm-hmm. But I kept eating them because it just felt so, so good. I mean, there were some scary moments and <clears throat> those scary moments were like a challenge to overcome. And I knew that like yeah. we could, you know? Yeah. So I kind of always just like, was like, all right, whatever, whatever the mushrooms got, let me have it. You know, um, they, they do have a way of kind of like luring you in, you know, <laughs> for sure. often it's kind of like giggles for a while, especially when you're just hanging out with friends and eating mushrooms and then like. There's some point where, like, I don't know, somebody comes around. I remember one of the biggest ones for me was, like, I went into this house. We're hanging out in the city and going house hopping, hanging out. People go to this house, and they're watching Ren and Stimpy in this house while I'm on mushrooms. And it was the most horrifying thing that I'd ever seen. I was like, oh, my God, this is what we're feeding people. This is what we're consuming with our minds. You know, it just hit me so, so hard. Um, And, uh, you know, it was moments like those I, I would – I would find myself in them and I, I would find myself uncomfortable in them, but I also found it like such a valuable opportunity to just sit with that uncomfort, mm-hmm. you know, and just like, okay, this is what we deal with on our, our, every day. People are watching Randy Stimpy every day, buddy. Just sit here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, holy shit. This is what's, you know, so, uh, and then, uh, then it started to move in towards gourmet. Like I was 19 when I was 20, I, I started getting like, really intrigued by gourmet mushrooms um and then like probably around 21 i'd moved in this house and there were uh fairy ring marasmus species growing out in the backyard uh 
And um, I would sit out in the morning, smoke pot and draw or paint or journal. And the squirrels would be like running around chewing on the mushrooms in the fairy ring. And I was just like, man, I bet we can eat a bunch of mushrooms. I bet we just like really have been living in fear basically and not mm-hmm. there's more out there than we know. And so I started reading and found out like, sure enough, there's like a bunch, a whole, whole bunch. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> uh, and then it just became just kind of. Uh, not i don't want to say obsession i mean it is like maybe that's the right word but um obsession i see is unhealthy i feel like my relationship with mushrooms maybe is a better way to put it um really developed quite strongly over the following years where uh you know i came to feel that there was some kind of exchange of information that there was a communication going on even with myself and these these organisms, uh, and then as I started cultivating, that became even more and more pronounced. That, um, you know, there there is this is a two way two way street. And then you know, mushrooms have helped me learn that that is actually all of reality. That this is constantly mm-hmm. an engaging process, and like it it responds to us, and we respond to it, and so it's, it's kind of back and forth. Uh, consciousness, whatever humanity, the organism of humanity, uh, or life in whatever form it's taking, you know, is like f- constantly feeding information to itself to try to like over fucking eons figure out what it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. Mushrooms definitely. Uh, my relationship with mushrooms definitely, um, you know, had an impact with my relationship on reality has a continuing impact on that um so yeah sorry the ramble no that's good where um so you're you're doing mushrooms your your painting styles changing you're getting into gourmets where does it go from there um well it's just i guess that's where we are right now um it's it's kind of been a lot of the same, you know, I mean, but but variations thereof. I mean, I don't work with gourmet mushrooms as much as I used to. Um, I mean, directly from there, it went to, you know, I was in the classroom teaching um, and loving mushrooms. Mushrooms really, like, they inspired me to go back to school and, like, become better uh, uh, wow. for the world. Like, so you can't keep having these experiences of seeing your potential and then just sitting on your ass and, like, mm-hmm. smoking weed or playing video games all day. You know, uh, so I went back to school and uh, got a degree in education, worked as a teacher for middle school for uh, seven years or so. Um, all, the, all the while, like I would go out on the weekends and afternoons every time I could be picking mushrooms, you know, uh, edibles uh, and, you know, grew a few psilocybes for myself all the while. They were doing like a PF tech in my basement for all the time. My like ex-wife didn't even know. I just have enough mushrooms for me and one other friend basically to eat. About every six months. And so that was like about a six-year, five, six-year span where I was teaching. And then when I was teaching, I got – there was a guy at the school that had this farm. I was like, hey, man, if you want to take care of this farm and live out there for free, you can do that. And uh, he's on the board, very generous guy. I was on the board of school. And so I was like, uh, yeah, sure, please. I think I would do that. Um, <laughs> and especially after I went and looked at the property because it had two big metal outbuildings for that could easily be modified for large-scale gourmet production. Oh, uh, so yeah, I was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Went out there and, uh, magnificent mushrooms then kind of 
became uh, it did consume my life. I couldn't keep driving back and forth an hour each way to Louisville uh, to teach when there was so much interest and in the mushrooms that we were growing, and there was um, you know there was potential to it seemed like to make a decent living growing edible mushrooms and educating people about the value of edible mushrooms for medicinal, um, physiological well-being, uh, protein replacement, environmental health. I mean, there's just like the gamut. You make plastics out of these things, and they eat plastic. We, we literally can, like, and will, whether we do it, whether we actively engage with it or not, the earth will recycle everything that we shit out upon it, and fungi will play a huge role in turning that into some kind of beauty down mm-hmm. the road, you know. Uh, but we can like actively engage with mushrooms and make the world help the world uh, expedite the process of healing, you know. And so, like on, on all these fronts, seeing that on the physiological, the environmental, the psychological, it's just like, okay, well, how am I going to engage with this thing? How am I going to give mm-hmm. my life over to this thing? Right. So that's what I did, um, and uh, was out on the farm. And so, yeah, I gave myself over to psilocybin as well. Uh, once I was out on the farm, out of the city, then I felt like I could you know, comfortably grow a little more psilocybin uh, without drawing attention to myself. Mm -hmm. Never having the mind to do it, like, to sell out, you know. I just, like, wanted to help people enjoy it. At that point, even still, it was just like, I just want people to come over and eat mushrooms. We don't have to drink alcohol. We can, like, come over and eat eat mushrooms and hang out, you know. And so, like, I would, at that point, would have, like, small parties and invite, you know, five to 15 people over and just have big bowls of mushrooms sitting out, you know. Let's just (laughs) eat mushrooms. Um, And... It just, you know, continued to evolve and seeing how many people were like, man, that night was like, uh, like helped me to process and deal with and enjoy, you know? And so like, you're just seeing this, like, like I said, how you not going to give yourself over to it. Right. So I just felt responsible, um, as a, um, you know, some, someone who I, I felt like I had been given this gift of mushroom, you know, it's not like I really sought it out. It just kind of landed in my lap. I mean, there was times when I was a kid, like five years old, there used to be recording of me talking about mushrooms, you know, so somewhere in there, it's really, really, it's really, really deep in. And, uh, so I, you know, it's a responsibility to, to share. And so that's ultimately what led to me getting arrested, which, you know, I don't know, whatever we've, I've, I've, I've hashed that out in a lot of different places talking about, I mean, still something that I deal with, like that tr- big, trip that i had the other night you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i was just so fucking scared to death for like a solid hour that i was gonna go i was gonna be back in jail you know that somehow the whatever the um simulation whatever was gonna lock me up i just uh, i had had a had a big one <laughs> a week or so ago <laughs> uh did me a lot of good paid the payouts were, were yeah. tenfold um but yeah, there's still a lot of trauma to work out there because, you know, all along is just trying to do good. You know, I was just trying to help people right. out. Um, never did charge for mushroom sessions up there. It's just, I got mushrooms. I have a decent understanding of how they work and helping you get through it. Uh, so please let me, let's, let's do this. And, uh, so yeah, that whole thing went down, uh, and you can still hear it. I'm still like shaking it out. That's good. So, um, Yeah. And now we're just feeding mushrooms to a bunch of people. And it was all for the good. It was all for the good that all that happened. It was all for the good that, you know, we were doing the work. And it was all for the good that what seemed to be this great calamity uh, brought us to where we are now. Uh, even though Michael had started before that, I wasn't being public with it. And I always felt like this real fucking, like, 
um, conflict, internal conflict, because this is work that I am actually really proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, I love these mushrooms. I think it's obvious. And the people that are here with us now and this team that's growing around it are people that love the mushrooms and the work, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, yeah, it's just like, I don't even know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. Um, you're in Jamaica now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before, because it was before. So being public and being being able to not have to hide. I mean, that's uh, that's a big thing of what the mushroom teaches us a lot, right? Is like it's the hiding of these secrets or these things that we think are our faults or these like uh-huh. just let it out, man. Let air it out. Bring it to the light. It's not. It's it's nothing. We all deal with these things. We all deal with darkness. We all deal with whatever shortcomings or you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And we just keep. We keep so often we feel like we don't want to burden other people or we don't want to like embarrass ourselves or be weak or vulnerable and yeah, man, bring it to the light. Um, so never want to have secrets. Uh, never liked hiding, doing underground psilocybin work. Um, and yeah, just super grateful to <laughs> Jamaica. These people, these people that have been so good to me over the years, never understood why I was down here talking mushrooms like i was you know <laughs> like goes crazy mushroom guy again i don't know whatever um and uh i'm just so grateful for them not just not just not at all just for how they've been so hospitable to Maiko, but just to me you know over the years the treasure beach great bay in particular has just like nurtured me um and i just couldn't be more grateful to be to be here honestly we both, we all have those dips, you know, we we're talking today about how, you know, you lose sight of how good things are and get like, oh, why is it not this way? Oh, it could be better. Oh, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, man, so, so grateful. Uh, yeah. Man. Yeah. So as somebody that's spearheading the availability of psilocybin, where do you want to see this go? Hmm. I think this is probably one of the more important questions of this interview when I do with people, honestly, um, because it's our group mind that's going to put this together. Hope you know, mm-hmm, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there are um, there are some notable voices, you know, in the public dialogue about where it's going to go, and uh, it's still open, you know, um, what it's going to lo- look like. Personally, I hope that there are just like a whole bunch of different ways. I hope that there's just a whole bunch of different um, approaches, mm-hmm. um, but that they're all they're all held safely. They're all they're all done safely or compassionately. But the, like, but really, 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 that the people that are administering that are working with this medicine getting it into people that they are eating the mushrooms too right i do not want to see or wait i do want to see a world where psilocybin is available um in relaxed therapeutic environments like we have here there's so many beautiful places in the states where we could do people could have so many beautiful experiences um where it is in a more sterile clinical directed um, I want to see that available. Mm-hmm. I, I want to eventually see it available that is treated with <laughs> even more uh, 
<laughs> respect. I don't know, like alcohol, like this ridiculousness that alcohol <laughs> is people are out killing themselves left and right from the toxicity, yeah. from the behavior, from the, the, the uh, you know, people dying that are not even drinking because drunk drivers. So like that, that, that this can actually become a part of our culture where eventually 20 years, maybe down the road, 30 years down the road, we understand that like we can actually just eat mushrooms on a weekend or whatever with a friend, a, a, a thoughtful, considerate friend in a safe place mm-hmm. and just let the experience unfold. And we don't have to like make it into some big thing where I've got to have like all the therapists, right. all the doctors, I've got to fly to a foreign country. Like this, this medicine, again, liberation, right? It goes back to liberation. You can, this is the sustainable psychedelic. This is the thing that you can grow on waste. Your coffee that you drink every morning, you can grow your mushrooms in the coffee waste, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's just, this is the medicine for the, for the people and it can be by the people as well, but it's going to take time for us to learn as a culture how to use the medicine, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, First of all, we've had the war on drugs that was, uh, was just this war on information was war on truth, you know, like you said, thought these things are killing us and like all along, this is good for our brain. So yeah. like yeah we should be doing this more actually, um, and you know, just giving play- people a safe supportive place with a safe supportive person. There will be therapists or that's that's a whole like other thing. The people that help you like process and work through your issues and whatnot. It's like, and then I don't you know I don't know how this thing like because this is ultimately something that I believe um, is. Like it runs itself. There's not a need for an elaborate setup around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm still like cautiously optimistic that this is even going to be available, right? There's like there's still kind of that shadow I feel like looming. That are they really? You really think that they're gonna that it's gonna be allowed for this to become, you know, public access without some really tough filters to have to get through um and you know if that if that is part of the process and over the next few years that's what we deal with and so be it um but it hopefully is moving towards a uh true liberation and not liberation under the direction of some authority that has a Mm -hmm. detached understanding of what the thing even is Mm -hmm. so yeah you know any it could it could look like so many amazing things and there should be just innumerable variety as long as it is safe as humanly possible everything has risks everything right and that the people who are <laughs> uh you know bringing you to the medicine are also experiencing it and uh, understanding it as best as we can uh that's what like i think we're at at, at a, some point we're just going to get to like if we really do get to use this stuff on a very open basis, God, how interesting it will be to see what that can, that can do for the collective evolution uh, of humans and our, our awareness of consciousness, you know, like, you know, you see what it's like when we have like 15 people here and we're dosing in like that kind of group mind and that, you know, but like, and then the festivals, we kind of see bigger scale. But imagine if we had a world that was really free and you had like 50, 150 just mega minds, you know, energies, spiritual powerhouses 
they came together and consumed psilocybin together. Dude. Massive change could Dude, happen. You're talking about working on the mechanics of the quantum universe, you know? Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Fuck. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, yeah. Who knows what it looked like? I don't. I, I, that's it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually there's going to be billboards. Yeah. Oh, and what should they say? Dude, I have not. Man, I haven't. Those are so many I listen to. I think that the one that I keep coming back to is just, well, you know, it's simple. It's kind of rudimentary, but um, I, I, I very much like the whole psilocybin saves lives because that's one of the things that we see it do. It gives people a new direction. I know myself, it it, it saved my life. Um, but it, I don't, you know, whatever. I can just leave it at that. I'm not going to. I don't have board. any. Yeah, that's a good one. But it does like a whole lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, like we, we don't know what the heck's going on behind the scenes with this thing. It's, you know, and like whatever. We'll have like uh, people who you know, try to put it in when we all do try to put it into blurbs or describe like this is what it is. But like, again, the mystery of it, like, so I probably, I'd probably work on that a little better, uh, and try to, uh, relate something about the mysterious nature of the mushroom on my billboard. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Eric. Yeah. It's a pleasure being here again. <laughs> all right. psilocybin saves lives that is my motto and i'm sticking with it i've seen it happen so many times friends so many times of course i have occasionally seen it not be such a good fit for some but that's rare overall these mushrooms are truly magic now touching back on old frederick Douglass, uh you know he is in large part and individuals like him inspiration for my work I've always had a thing for freedom fighters, you know, uh, that probably shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, myself and people like me have been fighting for psilocybin freedom for decades now. Uh, and men like Douglas, men like Haile Selassie, women like Maya Angelou, Maria Sabina, so many others. Uh, it is really to them that we owe this opportunity that we've been giving. And that is why we should take full advantage of it. Uh, and not let their efforts go to waste. Stop and think about the millions of lives that were lost, slaughtered, uh, in particular because of their use of sacred mushrooms. Uh, that was primarily the Maya. If you don't know anything about that, well, we'll get an episode up soon enough that will talk some history about Maria Sabina and the what we know of the early mushroom users. If you haven't looked into this, well, <laughs> the mushroom history with humanity runs deep. And we are all a part of it. Uh, after consulting Google, I found that the speech referred to early on in the episode was given on July 5th, 1852 in Corinthian Hall, Rochester, New York. Uh, Douglas was addressing the Rochester's Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, not the statesman, um, president, etc., whoever I had imagined. <laughs> but it's a powerful piece nonetheless, and I am sure it made it to their ears. On that day in 2015, I was behind bars and fearful for my life. To think what men and women like Douglas and others have gone through to be considered just human, um, my little bit of time served was nothing compared to the persecution that countless others have gone through. 
a good friend of mine was actually laying down some stats on human trafficking to me the other day. And oh man, I had no idea. So naive. Anyway, you all have heard enough of me this episode. I'm not going to get on some big rant. I'm going to leave you with a fiery reading of Douglas's speech. I'm going to let Douglas take us out of here. Uh, Douglas, if you don't know, <laughs> taught himself to read. Uh, he tricked a young white boy to teach him the ABCs, and it is a heck of a story. You can find it online and yeah, lots of places. Douglas is well documented as one of history's baddest motherfuckers. Uh, this audio clip is from the Smithsonian Folkways recordings. They don't call him one of the baddest motherfuckers. <laughs> However, it is uh, titled A Voice Ringing O'er the Gale, the Oratory of Frederick Douglass. This is read by Ossie Davis, and it is read the way I believe Douglass would have said it. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining me on the Psilocybin Chronicles. May all of your journeys, both inward and outward, be safe and rewarding. The Meaning of July 4th for the Negro The papers and placards say that I am to deliver a 4th of July oration. This certainly sounds large and out of the common way for me. It is true that I have often had the privilege to speak in this beautiful hall and to address many who now honor me with their presence. But neither their familiar faces nor the perfect gauge I think I have of Corinthian Hall seems to free me from embarrassment. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between this platform and the slave plantation from which I escaped is considerable, and the difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. That I am here today is, to me, a matter of astonishment as well as of gratitude. You will not, therefore, be surprised if in what I have to say I evince no elaborate preparation nor grace my speech with any high-sounding exordium. With little experience and with less learning, I have been able to throw my thoughts hastily and imperfectly together. And trusting to your patient and generous indulgence, I will proceed to lay them before you. This, for the purpose of this celebration, is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. This, to you, is what the Passover was to the emancipated people of God. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance and to the signs and to the wonders associated with that act and that day. This celebration also marks the beginning of another year of your national life and reminds you that the Republic of America is now 76 years old. I am glad, fellow citizens, that your nation is so young. 76 years, though a good old age for a man, is but a mere speck 
in the life of a nation. Three score years and ten is the allotted time for individual men. But nations number their years by thousands. According to this fact, you are, even now, only in the beginning of your national career, still lingering in the period of childhood. I repeat, I am glad this is so. There is hope in the thought, and hope is much needed under the dark clouds which lower above the horizon. The eye of the reformer is met with angry flashes, portending disastrous times. But his heart may well beat lighter at the thought that America is young and that she is still in the impressible stage of her existence. May he not hope that high lessons of wisdom, of justice, and of truth will yet give direction to her destiny. Were the nation older, the patriot's heart might be sadder and the reformer's brow heavier. Its future might be shrouded in gloom and the hope of its prophets go out in sorrow. There is consolation in the thought that America is young. Great streams are not easily turned from channels worn deep in the course of ages. They may sometimes rise in quiet and stately majesty and inundate the land, refreshing and fertilizing the earth with their mysterious properties. They may also rise in wrath and fury and bear away on their angry waves the accumulated wealth of years of toil and hardship. They, however, gradually flow back to the same old channel and flow on as serenely as ever. But while the river may not be turned aside, it may dry up and leave nothing behind but the withered branch and the unsightly rock to howl in the abyss-sweeping wind the sad tale of departed glory. As with rivers, so with nations. Fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too, great enough to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable. And yet, I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes. And for the good they did, and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. They loved their country better than their own private interests. And though this is not the highest form of human excellence, all will concede that it is a rare virtue, and that when it is exhibited, it ought to command respect. He who will intelligently lay down his life for his country is a man whom it is not in human nature to despise. 
Your fathers stake their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. In their admiration of liberty, they lost sight of all other interest. They were peace men, but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. They were quiet men, but they did not shrink from agitating against oppression. They showed forbearance, but they knew its limits. They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. With them, nothing was settled that was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. You may well cherish the memory of such men. They were great in their day and generation. Their solid manhood stands out the more as we contrast it with these degenerate times. How circumspect, exact, and proportionate were all their movements. How unlike the politicians of an hour. Their statesmanship looked beyond the passing moment and stretched away and in strength into the distant future. They seized upon eternal principles and set a glorious example in their defense. Mark them. Fully appreciating the hardships to be encountered, firmly believing in the right of their cause, honorably inviting the scrutiny of an onlooking world, reverently appealing to heaven to attest their sincerity, soundly comprehending the solemn responsibility they were about to assume, wisely measuring the terrible odds against them, your fathers, the fathers of this republic, did most deliberately, under the inspiration of a glorious patriotism and with a sublime faith in the great principles of justice and freedom, lay deep the cornerstone of the national superstructure, which has risen and still rises in grandeur around you. Of this fundamental work, this day is the anniversary. Our eyes are met with demonstrations of joyous enthusiasm. Banners and pennants wave exultingly on the breeze. The din of business, too, is hushed. Even Mammon seems to have quitted his grasp on this day. The ear-piercing fife and the stirring drum unite their accents with the ascending peal of a thousand church bells. Prayers are made, hymns are sung, and sermons are preached in honor of this day. While the quick martial tramp of a great and multitudinous nation, echoed back by all the hills, valleys, and mountains of a vast continent, bespeak the occasion one of thrilling and universal interest, a nation's jubilee. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of national justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar 
and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him? Who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs? I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak and the lame man leap as in heart. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers, it's shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct. And let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the examples of a nation whose crimes, towering up to heaven, were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty burying that nation in irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of a peeled and woe-smitten people. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. 
If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on the 4th of July. Whether returned to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice, or who is not at heart a slaveholder, shall not confess to be right and just. But I fancy I hear someone of my audience say, it is just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less would you persuade more and rebuke less, your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit, where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man, that point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. 
The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the enactment of laws of their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death. While only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that Southern statute books are covered with enactments forbidding, under severe fines and penalties, the teaching of the slave to read or to write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, then I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your street, when the fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, when the fish of the sea and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then will I argue with you that the slave is a man. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, artists, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave, we are called upon to prove that we are men. Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation as a matter beset with great difficulty, involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice hard to be understood? How should I look today in the presence of Americans dividing and subdividing a discourse to show that men have a natural right to freedom, speaking of it relatively and positively negatively and affirmatively. To do so would be to make myself ridiculous and to offer an insult to your understanding. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. What? Am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, 
to flay their flesh with a lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters? Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine? That God did not establish it? That our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There is blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can may. I cannot. The time for such argument is past. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. <laughs>